0: And so as we're walking through this series, we've given you a homework assignment that we want the whole church to know and to memorize the Apostles' Creed. So today we're giving you a test. It's a fill-in-the-blank test. So we're going to start out together, and then I'm not going to help you, uh, but you can help one another in this test. So here we go. Let's say this together. I believe... Give yourselves a hand, turn to your neighbor and say good job, and why don't you go ahead and grab a seat. I mean, I noticed a few kind of like tricky train wreck moments, like was it Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit? Does Jesus sit at the right hand of God or does he sitteth? At the right hand of God, although I'm not sure what sitteth actually means. We'll use some old King James language in there. But hey, today we are going to talk about that part of the creed and that part of the Bible, that quite frequent part of the Bible where it talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. And in that pattern back and forth where we're talking about, because I believe I will, it's like this today, because I believe that he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, I will trust that God is in control. Do you struggle with control? Do you try to wrestle it back from God, say, God, I trust you, and then you just take it right back? Well, there's no greater part of the Bible for me that captures the majesty and the glory of what it means to trust God than Romans chapter 8, where it says this, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not out of its own will, but out of the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that it might be set free from its bondage to decay and will attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown innerly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought to. But that Spirit, its very Spirit, intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not withhold His own Son, will He not also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who's in a position to condemn because it's Christ Jesus who died, who, yes, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for us. What then will separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nothing in the past, the present, nor anything to come, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but also the putting into practice of his holy word. John Ortberg decided one birthday to give his wife a very different kind of present. And so he gave Nancy um, this hot air balloon ride. And so this shared experience, this great adventure, he gave it to her for her birthday. And he tells this story so well, I'd love to share it to you in his own words. He said, my wife and I went to the field where the balloons ascended, and we got into the little basket with one other couple. We introduced ourselves, we swapped vocational information, and then our pilot began the ascent. The day had just dawned. It was crisp, clear, and cloudless. We could see the entire Conejo Valley. We could see from the craggy canyons all the way to the Pacific Ocean. It was scenic, inspiring, and majestic but I also experienced one other emotion I had not anticipated, fear. I had always thought that those baskets were about chest high, but this one only seemed to come up to like our knees. (laughs) One good lurch would be enough to throw someone over the side, and so I held on with grim determination and white knuckles. And I looked over at my wife, who does not care for heights, and relaxed a bit knowing that there was someone in the basket who was more tense than I was. I could tell because she would not move, not at all. During part of the flight, there was a horse ranch on the ground directly behind her. I pointed it out because she loves horses and without turning around or even pivoting her head, she simply rolled her eyes back as far as she could and said, yes, they're lovely. About this time, I decided to try to get to know the kid who was flying this balloon. I mean, I realized I could try to psych myself up into believing that everything would be fine. But the truth was that we had placed our lives into the hands of this pilot. Everything depended on his character and competence. I asked him what he did for a living and how he got started flying hot air balloons. I was hoping that his former job was to be one full of responsibilities. A neurosurgeon, perhaps, or maybe an astronaut who missed going up into space. I knew we were in trouble when his response to me began, Dude, it's like this. He didn't even have a job. He mostly surfed. He said the reason he got started flying hot air balloons was he'd been driving around in his pickup when he'd had too much to drink, crashed the truck, and badly injured his brother. His brother still couldn't get around too well, and so watching hot air balloons gave him something to do. By the way, he added, if things get a little choppy on the way down, don't be surprised. I've never flown this particular balloon before. I'm not sure how it's going to handle the descent. My wife looked over at me, and she said, you mean to tell me we're a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who started flying hot air balloons because he got drunk, crashed a pickup, injured his brother, and he's never been in this one before because he doesn't know how to bring it down? Then the wife of the other couple looked at me and spoke the only words that either of them were to utter throughout the entire flight. You're a pastor, do something religious. (laughs) So I did, I took up an offering. There's only one question that really matters when you get into a hot air balloon. Can I trust the pilot? There's only one question that matters when you go down to Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta Airport and you board a plane. Can I trust the pilot? There's only one question that ultimately matters as we fly on this spaceship Earth through all of the universe. Can I trust the pilot? You and I live with the illusion that we're in control, but we know we know that the vast majority of our life is beyond our control. And I love how Max Lucado puts it. He said, God's answer for troubled times has always been the same. Heaven has an occupied throne. When we say in the Bible that he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God... That is code language for saying that Jesus, if we were going to put this in today's language, that he's sitting in the pilot seat. That he's in control. That he has the authority to do what needs to be done. And the question is, do you trust him? I don't know about you, but I would like to have a Romans 8 kind of faith. And so what I'd like to do today is to look at Romans 8 a little more closely and see if there's a way that we can learn from the Apostle Paul and how to trust that God is in control because he's ascended and sits at the right hand of God. So what do we learn from Romans chapter 8? We learn that there's a couple of things that we know We learn that there's one thing that we don't know and we learn that there's something that we need to be absolutely convinced of. Let's first talk about what we know according to Romans chapter 8. The first thing that Paul says is that we know that the whole creation, not part of it, the whole creation is groaning in pain. This is Paul's language. This is the way that he describes that we live in a world that's not all right. That we live in a world that still has storms and diseases and problems and that we're even a part of that problem and so that we are groaning in pain in a longing for the world to be different and the language that Paul uses here when he says that we're groaning in pain he, he uses particular language here he talks about it being the pain of labor now as a guy I have never been more proud of my wife than watching her give birth to our two daughters. And as a guy, I'm not qualified to talk about the particular nuances of the pain of childbirth. To do so puts me in very hot water. (laughs) So I don't know how much it hurts, but what I do know, because I was there, I can say this. It was not ordinary pain. Not just because of the extent of the pain, but because the pain was leading somewhere. It was a pain that was filled with anticipation. It was a pain with a purpose. It was not ordinary kind of pain. And so when the Apostle Paul is describing how our world is all disjointed and fractured and that we know that it's broken and that it's not working and that we're a part of the problem, he's describing this with this language of that we're in labor pains. And so it's language that describes that, yeah, things really hurt right now, but they're hurting and leading us to hopefully a favorable outcome. So the first thing we know is that the whole creation is groaning. The second thing we know is that all things work together for good. Now, this might be the most misquoted or misunderstood portion of the New Testament. Because notice that it does not say that all things are good. A lot of times we put these on like little cards and you sell them in a Christian bookstore and everything looks great and all things, all things are good. No, they're not good. There's lots that's wrong. There's a lot of injustice. There are a lot of problems. It doesn't say that everything's okay. What it says is that all things work together for the good. In other words, that there's a process of redemption, and no matter how bad or broken it might be, but that God is constantly behind the scenes working on that redemptive plan that that things might work out differently than the path that we're on now. I want to show you an image of a small American town in the first half of the 20th century. This is Flagstaff, Maine. And I mean it was a typical, quaint, New England kind of town. Like a lot of love, Americana in this town. In true story, first half of the 20th century, in 1949, this town was informed by the state government that the entire town was going to be flooded and dammed up in order for there to be a new lake in that area. But don't worry, everything's going to be okay. We're going to name the lake after the town. It's called Flagstaff. But everything you know and everything you own is going to be submerged underwater within six months to a year. And so you can imagine how disruptive this news was this particular town. And it was incredible the transformation that took place in the town. What was a cute little town? I mean, are you going to paint your house when you know that six months from now your house is going to be submerged 15 feet underwater? Of course not. Are you going to mow the lawn? Uh Uh-uh. Are you going to pick up the trash? Who cares? Immediately with that news, imminent domain by the state, all of a sudden people stopped caring for that town and it became in disarray and it became a ghost town. And here's what Ray Johnston said about it. He said, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Will you say that with me? Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. In other words, if there is no hope, there is no real power in what's going on right now. And what Romans 8 tells us is that there's not only this groaning and this longing, but also there is this hope, this hope that we can't even see. And if we cling to that hope, we're reminded that not only are all things working together towards the good, but that you and I have a destiny. We could get into an argument about free will and predestination, but can we at least all agree that Romans 8 says that you have a destiny and so do I? And that our destiny is to be more and more conformed into the image of the one who made us. And yet most of the time, you and I live like this. This is a modern picture of sometimes the church, which is one of the highest points of Flagstaff, Maine. When the lake really goes down, you can see half of the church sticking out. This is the way that you and I sometimes live our lives. Kind of half in, half out. Kind of trust that everything's going to work out kind of don't trust. We try to live in that in-between space. Do you believe that all things it's possible for everything to be redeemed? So we know that the whole creation is kind of groaning in pain. We know that all things work together for good. But you know what we don't know? We do not know how to pray. I want you to raise your hand if you are perfectly satisfied with your prayer life that you don't feel like you have any room to grow, and that you've got it all covered, that you've got check, prayer, nailed it. I've had a single person all morning take me up on that request. We all know that our words don't match up to the lofty, majestic grandeur of like a Romans 8. That we don't know how to pray as we ought to. If you want to learn how to pray, let me tell you the secret. Find somebody that's a little further down the road than you in their maturity in Christ. You see the fruit of the evidence of God's Spirit in their lives. And just ask them, will you teach me to pray? Prayer is not natural. Crying out to God when you're in distress, that's perfectly natural. That's instinct but an ongoing conversational relationship with God, like all forms of communication, that has to be learned behavior. Lord, teach us to pray, it says in the Bible. And here's the good news. You and I know intrinsically that our prayer life is inadequate. Guess what's happening when you and I pray? Jesus, who ascended to the Father, who sits at the right hand of God, he's not just there as a symbol of authority. He is there to intercede for us. And in partnership with the Spirit, there is this incredible divine connection that goes on that even though our prayers are inadequate, Jesus is there helping our prayers along. That the Spirit is there helping your prayer along. So we know that things are painful right now. We know that things are on a trajectory of hope. We know that we don't pray as we should. But you know what we need to be convinced of? That nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. I remember being in a Bible study on the warm grass on a sunny, Sunday evening at Sarah Suttereth's house when I was in high school, having a Bible study. It was summertime, and we had a summer intern from Baylor who was leading our uh, kind of our, our Bible studies over the course of the summer. And I'll never forget, we're all sitting in the front yard, we're all sitting there with our Bibles open, we're sitting there reading Romans chapter 8. And uh, we get to the part about nothing being able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the Baylor student, who, who, was, a little, who was a little unnerved by the snarky nature of the teenagers in this group, um, she says, nothing, we're like, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us. And one of my friends goes, what about murder? Can murder separate you from the love of God? And she's like, no. Someone else piped in, what about abortion? Can abortion separate you from the love of God? We're just like trying to to come up with a list of things that can separate you. And each time she's like, nothing, nothing. And the sarcastic nature of the conversation changed when a young woman who's a student in our group, whose mom was in the death and dying process from cancer, and she said, what about cancer? Can cancer separate you from the love of God? And the whole tone of the conversation changed. And the Baylor student took a deep breath and said, no, nothing, nothing can separate you from God's love. When our girls were little, we would often let them go pick a book off the bookshelf and then hand it to one of us to sit and to read. And one of the books that every once in a while they would pick off the shelf and hand to their mother to read was this book called Love You Forever. Kelly always had to steal herself from the moment that either of our daughters handed her this book because she just knew that there was no way she was gonna read this book to our daughters without crying. And in case you've never encountered the book before, this is how it goes. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Well, that baby grew. He grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old. And he ran all around the house. And he pulled all the books off the shelves. And he pulled all the food out of the refrigerator. And he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed. And if he really was asleep, she picked him up and she rocked him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. Well, that little boy grew. He grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old. And he never wanted to come in for dinner. And he never wanted to take a bath. And when his grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of his bed. And if he really was asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. Well, that boy grew, he grew and he grew, he grew until he was a teenager, and he had strange friends, and he wore strange clothes, and he listened to strange music, and sometimes the mother felt like she was in a zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of the bed, and if he really was asleep, she picked up that great big boy, and she rocked him back and forth and back and forth, and while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. Well, that teenager grew, he grew and he grew, he grew until he was a grown-up man. And he left home and he got a house across town. But sometimes, on dark nights, the mother got into her car and drove across the town. And if all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his bedroom window, crawled up a ladder and crawled across the floor and looked up over the side of the bed. This isn't a little creepy or anything, is it? (laughs) And if that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older. And one day she called up her son and she said, you better come to see me because I'm old and sick. And so her son came to see her. And when he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. But she couldn't finish She was too old and too sick, and the son went to his mother, and he picked her up, and he rocked her back and forth and back and forth, and he sang this song, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my mommy you'll be. And when that son got home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs, and then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping And he picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. There's a kind of love that doesn't give up. There's a kind of love that doesn't run out. There's a forever eternal kind of love. And the question for you is, are you convinced of that love? That no height, that no pain, that no flood, that no disease, that no cancer, not even death, can separate you from that kind of love. You see, when you and I say that he is seated at the right hand of God, we don't just mean that he's in charge and that he's competent to do so. When we say that, we say that the one who is in charge also cares. That he cares enough for you and for me. He's no ordinary pilot. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Are you convinced? Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father, we know that we are not in control. And yet we try to wrestle that control back from you and pretend and live as if our lives are the center of the universe. And yet if we're honest, God, we know that this creation, this world, even ourselves, it's broken, it hurts, it's painful. And so I pray that you will give us a supernatural hope that everything, all things, can be worked out for your good and glory. Lord, our prayers fall short. They're inadequate. There's no way that our words can reach the very throne room of heaven, the holiest of holy places. Without you, we would not have access to our eternal Father. And so, Spirit of the living God, teach us to pray and intercede for us. And finally, Father, I pray for anybody here who's not yet convinced that in the quietness of their heart, they believe that there's something, that there's something that separates them from you and your great eternal love. And maybe it's something that they've done. Maybe it's something that they feel ashamed about. Maybe it's big, maybe it's small. But God, you tell us that nothing, nothing can part us from one another. And so Spirit, convict convict that soul right now who has never really trusted that. And help us now, all of us, To live in the confidence of who you are.